Welcome to the Enabled Disabled Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Serafini. I was born with a rare physical disability called PFFD. My journey has been about self-acceptance, persistence, and adaptation. On the show, we'll explore how people experience disability, how the stories we tell ourselves can both enable and disable, how vulnerability is the foundation for strength, and why people with disabilities can contribute more than we imagine. I hope that leaders, companies, clinicians, families, and friends will better understand our capacity to contribute to the world and help enable us to improve it. Fernando Albertorio is an accomplished innovator, entrepreneur, and problem solver. He's an active alum of the world's leading innovation networks, like at Y Combinator, Techstars, and Mass Challenge. His current company, VACA Technologies, provides early-stage innovation strategies and business consulting. Fernando's love for the sciences and sharp mind helped him get his chemistry degree and postgraduate degree in physics from Harvard University. Although Fernando's achievements are vast, his dedication to mentoring others with visual impairment, and his desire to create impactful assistive technology impressed me even more. If you want to learn more about Fernando and engage with the Enabled Disabled community, please come visit our Facebook group. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Fernando, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to see you again. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to kind of get started a little bit for people who don't know you, never met you before, never, never seen you online. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, about your vision story? Yeah, of course, uh, Gustavo. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Fernando Abitorio. Um, I was uh, born in Puerto Rico and the town of Ponce. And to answer your question about my vision story, well, I, uh, I was born uh, with the condition of ocular cutaneous albinism or OCA. And with that, I have um, low vision, I'm legally blind, uh, with uh, nystagmus. And again, of course, uh, with albinism and all the things that, that come with that. Uh, but related to my vision, um, like I said, I, I have uh, low vision and, and I'm uh, legally blind. Uh, so, uh, the uh, in terms of my who I am and what I do, uh, I am a scientist. Uh, I've worked in various fields of science. Uh, I have also um, become an entrepreneur in the last decade. Uh, I've created uh, various companies and technology uh, for both you know web and mobile and also wearable IoT technologies. And I also provide strategic and technical consulting to uh, various uh, startups and, and technology companies uh, who are interested in getting their products in the market. Interesting. So when you were growing up, what got you interested in STEM and the sciences? Sure. Um, so part of growing up, uh, you know, my dad uh, was, a, was a pilot for the Air Force. Uh, he also had his own businesses uh, related to aviation. So I pretty much grew up all around airplanes. Uh, it was fun to be able to get up, uh, go up uh, with my dad on his airplane um, and or with his uh, colleagues and friends. Um, but my dad also had a, a huge passion and love for science. So we also had a lot of, uh, you know, popular mechanics, uh, scientific American magazines around the house. Um, he was also pretty much a very uh, hands-on in terms of mechanically um, always uh, fixing things, uh, modifying uh, whatever he could get his hands on. So growing up in a household where, where science was a big thing and, and very curious, um, I got a, uh, I pretty much got bit by the bug uh, early on in, in, uh, in my childhood uh, and noticed that I gravitated naturally towards the science. And so um, they were, my parents, both my parents were very supportive. Um, I've always been uh, very um, empowering and making sure that I could advocate for myself, uh, that I had all the tools necessary to understand my condition, uh, the limits of, of what I can do, and always push those in a healthy way. 
but also advocating for being able to advocate for myself, especially when it came to school, uh, when it came with working with teachers and, and administrators. Um, and so along the way, I found a lot of teachers were very supportive of my interest in science. Um, I did the science fair thing. I did a lot of projects. Uh, and right around high school, I also had a great teacher who was a mentor as well, uh, who got me into chemistry. And that really kind of set me off into this journey of science and, and especially in, in, in chemistry. I decided to pursue my degree in, in chemistry early on when I, when I finished my high school diploma. Um, and yeah, so that pretty much got me into, into the whole field of STEM. Interesting. And you, we talked a little bit about this before, but I'd like to explore it some more uh, about your love of aviation and, you know, what it, how you felt going up there in the plane with your dad and, and, and his friends and what it meant to you. Can you talk a little bit? Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's super interesting. Yeah, of course. Uh, so my dad loved uh, being a pilot. He loved everything about airplanes. And that obviously rubbed off. Uh, for me, I was always naturally curious about about how planes fly. Uh, so, you know, you got the science side, but also the practical side of being a pilot, um, going up in the airplane, being able to have that chance of flight, um, really kind of did something interesting for me growing up that I didn't notice until, until much later on in life, that uh, it installed confidence, it installed that natural curiosity for, for science uh, and technology. But it gave me, as a person who's living with, um, you know, a vision condition, um, that confidence, even though I would never choose or, or, or I would never become a pilot uh, because of what the government and regulations have in place for, for safety and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've learned to, to deal with that from an early age, know the boundaries. However, also push those in a, in a way that made sense um, for everyone, meaning that having that opportunity to fly, to be involved, to learn um, there was nothing stopping me from learning um, the 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 principles of flight, the you know, and how how airplanes worked, uh, understanding everything that had to do with uh, with with uh, piloting and uh, a small aircraft. Um, and that was very exciting. That you know, my dad allowed that and fostered that in a way that was you know inspiring, but for me, but also grounded in what the realities are. Um, the reality is that I wasn't going to become a pilot or become an airline pilot or fly for the Air Force like, like he did or follow him in his career. But the, also thing, the other thing that happened was that it inspired me to look at science, to think of STEM, to think of ways that how things work and to have the courage or the, the confidence to pursue those. So where do you... So, I mean, I want to I want to tease that out a little bit more. So, getting up in that plane with your dad gave you confidence, and you like, why why did it give you that? What was what was it about the experience you think that gave you that confidence that you didn't quite have before? Um, it's it's everything to do with flight. Uh, I think there's something you know, if, if for those people who love flying and are very interested in. And airplanes, you know, it, it, it's in a way, it, it's a unique experience being able to get up there in a small airplane, being able to take the controls of an airplane, do a bank, do a turn. Uh, there's something like, it's a quote unquote magical about it. Uh, it's amazing to think that, you know, we can we can get an aircraft from the ground on up uh, at three or 10,000 feet, uh, be able to maneuver it. Uh, and so that alone uh, sparked a lot of a lot of curiosity, a lot of uh, confidence to be able to wow, I, you know, I can, I, I can actually do this. I can understand what what, what the instruments are reading. And what's interesting is that th there are groups in, in Europe who who are schools for aviation who are doing a program bringing um, young and or adults uh, who are blind or visually impaired. Uh, and allowing them that same experience, allowing them to go up for an hour um, and have an opportunity to take the controls of a small airplane uh, in an environment that's controlled and safe. Obviously, you're with an instructor, but being able to have that experience of controlling an aircraft, something that you normally wouldn't think you'd do as an individual who's living with a vision impairment or blind, uh, to be able to do that at, at you know 6,000 or 10,000 feet uh, is it, pretty amazing. That is amazing. I, 
Is there like, yeah, the, the, I mean, just for me, I would imagine going up on a plane as, as a young kid and, and having that be an amazing feeling. I would think that that would be at least amplified a little bit. Um, as somebody who's visually impaired to feel that sense of control, that sense of uh, awe and wonder of I can, I can manipulate this aircraft. I can control it. I can, I can feel the freedom of flight. So I, I think, do you know how that idea got started? And, and if it's, if it's spreading. Uh, I don't know how the idea got started. I know that there was an article that I read curiously enough on, on a flight. Uh, I was going to a conference and, and I read the article while I was on during my flight, and um, I, I hope it spreads. I hope that uh, we can do a program like that here in the states. Um, maybe partner up with uh, with instructors. So if there's any anyone who's in the in the aviation area and, and or an instructor or or involved in some way, um, you know, I'd love to speak with them as well because I, I think that you know a program like that uh, could inspire. Not just the moment of of flight and, and that 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 in its own is really cool, but also having a lasting effect in teenagers and, and and young adults or even adults as well who are going through the trauma of vision loss um, to have that experience is something I think very worthwhile. Hmm. Yeah, and then hopefully it'll foster you know it'll foster an interest either in aviation or like you said the sciences or some other area where where you get that belief again in yourself or, or you find a new belief in yourself and it leads you in, into new directions that you didn't expect. Totally. Uh, just opening those doors for discovery, uh, for self-awareness and to be able to challenge yourself and, and um, pursue a career that normally you wouldn't think people um, who are blind or, or, or visually impaired would want to would pursue. Um, but you know, today you know we see a lot of people who are visually impaired um, pursuing various careers in STEM, uh, whether whether it's research focused or or technology um, industry focused. It's really cool to see. Did can you talk a little bit about some of the some of the ways that you navigated? You know your your degree in chemistry and like maybe some of the, some of the problems that you solved along the way that might help people understand, you know, what your degree of problem solving, creativity, determination. Of course. Uh, so, you know, when, when you're, when, when you're living with a, a, a quote unquote uh, condition or, or, or disability, um, I think it's an it's an innate and inherent to you to become a problem solver because you're you're hacking ways or finding ways to do things uh, to to accommodate it, to find access. Um, going through my degree in chemistry was very interesting. Um, I learned new ways to solve problems, new ways to work with people, to engage not just my my colleagues or peers, but also my instructors. Um, so that I can actually then, you know, be able to complete a course, uh, get a grade. Um, I started my career in chemistry with a suggestion. First day in lab, I was suggested to go, you know, you might want to study accounting or something safer. Um, and I challenged myself to be the highest grade in, in my class um, that year. And I did it. I was the highest grade in my, in my lab course and in my, in my general chemistry. And that but, you know, gave me more confidence to continue on with the career, with the, uh, with the degree. Um, you're always solving problems. You're always finding new solutions. And I think that's something that happens even in your career. You know, no matter how many different careers you have or jobs you have, um, that ability to solve problems is something that you, you keep working on. Uh, and it's always a work in progress throughout your entire life. And so that, that's what, that's what separates um, really, really good problem solvers from, from everyone else. Um, I see a problem as, as an opportunity, uh, something to really learn, an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to stretch myself, and an opportunity to engage in something that is uh, maybe new to, to me or uh, new to a, co a group of colleagues and, and or whoever I'm working with. Uh, and so throughout my entire education in chemistry, uh, I solved ways to work in the lab safely and, of course, grounded in reality. And I got that from 
from early on in my childhood is how to advocate for myself, how to speak on behalf of what I need, or be able to articulate the things that I need in order to do whatever it is that I'm doing, do X, Y, Z, uh, whether in the course or whether it's in my job, um, whatever I'm doing. And so that's something that that you polish throughout the years. You keep working at it because it's your ability. It's the soft skills that you're also developing at the same time as the hard skills, the technical skills. So those two things go hand in hand as you're navigating, whether it's your, you know, your course or your degree in university, you're learning how to speak with professors, ask, you know, try to get what you need in order to be successful in the class or in your course. And the same thing applies to engaging with employers, engaging with managers, with supervisors or your boss, um, and being able to articulate, being able to ask, being able to negotiate um, those things that you need that you know will put you in a, in a really good path for success because that's what's going to get your head in, in, in the competition and, you know, you're, because you're actually competing whether it's you're competing against students or colleagues or even, you know, as an entrepreneur, you can be with, you know, with competitors or companies. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I've continued problem solving. I think it's something that as a person and many people, if you speak with them, uh, who live with various kinds of disabilities um, are unique problem solvers and carry that uh, not just on the technical side for their career, but also on the soft skill side. Absolutely. No, that's been, that's been a key for me too, but um, what is, so what is your approach to, to problem solving? Like, can you give me some specific examples of how you, not how you developed it, but like, what is your approach when, when there's a problem in front of you and you know, this is something important, I really want to solve it. And let's say you're working with, with a team of developers on a product, what is your what is your approach to that to that problem? How do you start to break it down? Sure, I mean, well, you start understanding its scope. Um, you start looking at who's involved, who's gonna, who is using, who's gonna benefit from from um, this problem being solved. Who has the problem or or the biggest pain? Um, and you get them involved, and you get them at the table, right? Um, and I can, you know, bring that example um, early on in my career when I was um, starting my first job right out of out of college. Um, my my research, um, you know, uh, the person who ran a lot of the principal investigator um, finally met me for the first time. We did we did interviews also remote that that time uh, for my first position. It was a series of interviews and tests and stuff like that. So I finally got the offer, and that first week when I showed up. Um, he took one look at me and he said, boy, I wish I would have known that you're visually impaired. Otherwise, I would not have hired you. Oh. And so, you know, that's something that when you think about a problem, um, you know, being fresh in your career, <laughs> that's one big one right <laughs> yeah. there, right? Because you, you're trying to, you know, you're starting off, you're worried about making first impressions, and now you're dealing with um, a, you know, your boss uh, who has an issue with doubt and confidence in your ability to do your job. Um, and so negotiating here, again, soft skills, very important because I knew the technical side I can handle. Um, I knew that I could work independent in the lab and I've done a, a lot of, I've had a lot of experience and, and past jobs that allowed me to develop those skills. Now I had to deal with this problem in a different level and which is very similar to how you develop products and you get, you know, you get the stakeholders involved and so I actually, you know, engage them in a conversation instead of trying to say, hey, you know what, um, let's turn this into a different, even a bigger problem, uh, because what you just said is, is pretty much not allowed um, and could cause even bigger problems. Um, what I did is I turned it around on him and it actually just thought about, okay, you know, what are things that we can work on together as a team? to show that I can do this research and also demonstrate to you the value that I can bring to your team because I know that I can do the technical side and I also know that within a couple months, you're going to rely on me to run a lot of this research. Hmm. And so 
again, you know, when you're same thing, when you're working with a client or when you're developing uh, a product with a group of collaborators, um, you have to be able to understand their pain points, what um, the scope of the problem, um, what is success going to look like, and then break it down from, um, okay, here's where we want to be. Now let's break it down backwards and see where we need to, uh, what, what are the different things that we need to do to start um, getting proof points and demonstrating that we're solving the problem. Uh, and so you can, you know, you can apply a little bit of design thinking or, or apply a bit of, um, of, of other methods to, to attack the problem, address it, uh, regardless if it's a technical or a business problem. But you weren't, so that's super interesting. A, the maturity level to not get angry. Maybe you did get angry, but at least you didn't show it. Um, that is, that's impressive. But B, rather than say, did you think, well, I'm just going to go look for, I'm going to go look for another position on the side because, you know, my boss doesn't want me here. Um, of course. I mean, like, yes, I, I, you know, yes, it's very upsetting. Um, you've got that emotional side, but also, you know, you've got, what is my plan B if this doesn't work out? If the relationship doesn't work, of course, you, you got to think all those things. And one thing that, you know, really makes a, a solid entrepreneur is to always think about what are my different options? Uh, do I pivot or do I persevere? Right. And rely on, on strong data to make those decisions. Right. If, if within one month I can't get the research to work or I can't, you know, we can't get this data to start validating that we're in the right direction, do we pivot or do we persevere? And one of the important things also when we're thinking about addressing really hard problems is our ability to learn and our ability to change our minds. I've met so many people in science and technical fields who are reluctant to change their minds, even in the face of data. <laughs> and so it, 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 to me, it's just mind-blowing, right? Um, that seems uh, like the, the antithesis of the, what the scientific method is supposed to be, right? Very much so, but you find this all over the place, right? Um, I mean, we can name a lot of examples here if we spend an hour on it. Um, but what I, what I, what is important as an individual to 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 be a great problem solver is the ability to take in feedback, take in ideas from other people, take in data from what you're doing, and reassess yourself and decide and look at this the situation and say, hey, given this new data. I really need to really change my thinking about this or I need to pivot and that, and, and doing that. And that's okay. And knowing it's okay. And because it's all about something that is bigger than, than your ego or than, than, than your, than your own feelings. And how do you, how do you deal with, or how do you try to separate um, those biases? Right? Like, so if you're trying to develop a product, you want it to work or you want to convince your, want to persuade your boss that you're the right person for the job uh, at what point do you say how do you look at the data and get a better understanding of whether or not there's a bias creeping in there that's causing you to misinterpret the data maybe or get too tied too tied down to the result that you want well um there's a great entrepreneur that i met uh, i read his book is uh, Steve Blank, actually, so I haven't met him physically, but we I read his book, um, seen a lot of his videos. And one of the things that he says is always get out of the building, right? Um, and so when you're when you're in in the trenches and you're you know you're you're getting all this data um and you're worried about your own bias, because we all have it, right? Uh, I mean, anyone who tells you that, oh, I, I can work unbiasedly well, <laughs> you might want to take that with a little bit of grain of salt because we all get attached to what we create to what we build uh, or to what we're investigating because we're passionate about it. When you have a lot of passion, it's hard sometimes to, to separate out um, that bias because we just internally, we want it to work. But if you're able to surround yourself with a strong team or uh, with mentors, advisors, who can also take in and look for a fresh perspective. Um, I find that getting a fresh perspective on a data or on, on anything that I'm working on um, is, is a very powerful thing. And it really kind of helps ground yourself again and realize that where are my biases coming from is we all have them. And be able to check yourself there against, you know, someone who is trusted or a mentor 
Um, even sometimes your own customers can be very helpful with that as well. You, get, you just have to you just have to listen for it and be willing to to listen to it, um, and that will help you um, navigate those decisions uh, where you can recognize where my biases are coming in um, when we're developing either product or we want you know we really want something to work and realizing that hey maybe I'm applying a little bit too much wishful wishful thinking here. Let's take a step back. Let's understand why this isn't happening. Uh, always getting at that at that root, um, and sometimes it involves talking to a lot of people outside of of where, where you are whenever possible. I I agree. Something that I try to think of when I'm working on a problem is it doesn't matter if my hypothesis or my solution is right or wrong. It matters that we as a team get it right, and so you know being kind of not getting attached to what I think the solution is helps me um, better assess the different options and the direction that we go that we go on as a team. Uh, but I think you you mentioned an interesting word there, mentoring, that I wanted to dive into as well. I know there's a lot of uh, successful entrepreneurs out there who have different takes on mentoring. How do you feel about mentoring? Uh, do you do any mentoring? Like, what is that? What does what does mentoring mean to you? How does that, how do you get involved there, if at all? Of course, um, so I get involved in mentoring activities. Um, I'm currently on working with an organization uh, on the board of directors called Team C Possibilities. Uh, and the, the, object, the, the, the purpose of Team C Possibilities is number one, to inspire um, and to help build the next generation of, of mentors, uh, and opportunities for students who are blind or visually impaired. Um, TMC Possibilities was created by a fellow named Dan Berlin, serial entrepreneur, very successful in business. Um, he's also um, a blind um, athlete. He is an endurance sports athlete. Mm-hmm. And so Dan uses his experience as an athlete to inspire. Um, he'll do like ultra marathons or he'll do some really hard crazy sports endurance challenge to show uh, people that um, you're not limited by a, a visual condition. Um, there are ways in which people with disabilities can actually accomplish really hard things that only very few people in the world will try, um, like an ultra marathon or, or, or running rim to rim on the Grand Canyon. And I really encourage people to visit their site. Um, there's some very exciting, interesting videos there. But what Dan has done is taken this a step further to provide mentorship to students um, who are starting university, uh, students who are blind or low vision, and who are getting into various career paths, whether it's STEM or whether it's in business or legal or social work. Um, it doesn't matter what you're studying. The idea is that we want to create more opportunities. Unfortunately, in when it comes to disabilities, um, a lot of people who are blind or low vision um, have a really high unemployment rate, uh, not just in this country, but also in other countries worldwide. And yeah. it's around over 67% unemployment rate. And it's, it, it's similar to other areas and, uh, or other disabilities, but I know really well the um, um, for the visual. Um, and so what we what we want to achieve with Team C Possibilities is creating that top of funnel. If we can empower more students to pursue a degree, a career path, uh, we're building the next generation of, of mentors for the next group of students. Meanwhile, at Team C Possibilities, we, we actually bring in mentors uh, who are low vision or blind who are actually doing it. So who are in different careers, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're in tech, or whether they're in legal fields, to engage with our students um, on a monthly uh, video call, video conference, um, and provide advice and share stories, um, and also have that connectivity with students. Mentorship is very important. I think mentorship, um, whether you're starting out your career as a student early on, we all we have all had benefited from mentors in our in our in our uh, studies and our career early on, um, and even late in life as well, as we pay it forward. Um, and you've probably heard that a lot. Um, and so, you know, that's a, that's a really cool thing to do. 
Um, and you get a lot out of it as a mentor yourself. So being a mentor actually opens a lot of possibilities for you um, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a mentor, uh, not just for the person you're working with. Can you, can you, so can you give us some examples of those possibilities that it opens up? Is it, was that something that you knew ahead of time or is that something that was like you experienced it and you were a little, you were pleasantly surprised? Um, I think I experienced it in many different ways. Um, being, being a mentor, it may not be immediate and obviously you don't, you don't volunteer just to see what you get out of stuff. Right. But, um, yeah. you know, it could be indirectly, it could be the satisfaction of seeing someone accomplish something awesome, um, or go through their career, um, sharing your lived experiences with them. Um, and even some of the questions that you get, uh, will help challenge yourself and help you, uh, open your mind to new ideas. Um, to, um, you know, students that you may have mentored who now gone on to new positions and find opportunities and may connect with you later on, on, on interesting projects or, or other ideas, for instance. Um, and so it's something that you discover along the way as being a mentor. Um, I think the program is at, at Team C Possibilities is wonderful because, you know, we're connecting students, not just with mentors, but we're also, uh, preparing them to be the next generation of mentors to bring that connectivity uh, and continue that cycle forward. It's it's super important. It's like it's it's a virtuous a virtuous circle. Um, in in terms of that, is there any data that you are aware of uh, that shows? I know that it exists in general for you know, people who have college degrees, what their job opportunities look like versus people who don't. Is there any data that you know of for um, people with some type of disability, um, college educated versus not college educated, how much it increases their uh, employment opportunities? That's a really good question. I don't actually have any hard data with me on, on, on that topic. Uh, Right now, what we're tracking are end of funnel, basically unemployment rates um, within a within I say in particular area disabilities like visually impairment visual impairments. Mm -hmm. um, the unemployment rate is pretty high; it's around sixty-seven percent. Um, you can then look at, um, but then when you survey people and you ask people, you know, what kind of jobs you're doing, what's interesting is you get a, a huge um, variety of 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 people doing different kinds of jobs, careers um, in this area. So, you know, you have people in law, um, people who are in finance or in business, um, which is very exciting, which shows that, you know, yes, we need to um, do have more programs, have more awareness um, for companies, employers, um, that there is a huge opportunity in opening that door for someone um, who can do the job, but is also maybe visually impaired and that you may have the bias that, oh, this is going to be a very difficult thing. Um, how, how can we change that? How can we change that narrative to something more, something different that this is an opportunity to engage with a unique problem solver. This is an opportunity to, to engage with someone who could mentor other people and bring and attract new talent or also um, engage with your customers or discover new customers for you um, as an employee. And so I think that that's something that we're, we're learning a lot about in terms of that data. We know that it's a, it's a wide variety. Um, in terms of the academic data, uh, we know that a high percentage of folks uh, who are visually impaired, um, you know, may not go beyond um, the, the fourth year of high school. Fortunately, you know, with, with online education, with the way things have uh, progressed um, in, in the latest um, decade or so, uh, I think we're seeing a shift in that. Um, and, I, and I think it's super exciting that we can have different ways in which to earn a degree whether it's completely online, uh, whether it's a hybrid or in, per, in person. Uh, and so we're seeing, we're seeing that impact, hopefully. And I hope it becomes bigger. Absolutely. And I, I love uh, 
the idea of, of having that flexibility to say, you know, I want to, I was not that I'm going to do it, but I was looking at uh, cybersecurity degrees and Georgetown has a program and they're offering that flexibility too. 20 years ago, you know, you would not have that ability to, to take online classes and, and get a degree that you'd be interested in. Yeah, and the, and the really cool thing that we're seeing is in, in the tech and in, in various fields in tech, like uh, programming, um, development, or user experience design, um, other areas that um, you can you can go by the traditional route, or there's many options to to either do a fully online program, uh, do a hybrid, or you know start with a boot camp. Um, there are various uh, entities that offer offer uh, course prep work for different areas in tech, and so it's providing more pathways for people with disabilities to engage with a with with a career choice that you know maybe on the outlook you look at it from the outside you you don't think it's very obvious right but actually um, allowing having that uh, remote slash online modes of training. Um, makes it very convenient for someone who's living with a, a condition, disability, um, whether it's mobility or whether it's visual or other, uh, to engage with that program and to complete that, that those requirements and then find opportunities. Absolutely. And then opportunities build more opportunities, right? So hopefully as more, say, people with some type of visual impairment or any disability get those degrees, get hired, they're going to create more opportunities for more people. And hopefully those employers, um, you know, on their next hire will be more open to hiring people and making those, you know, small, you know, usually not always, but usually small accommodations um, or letting their, letting their people engage in the problem solving the way you did. Right. And you, you, for example, you showed your first boss, I can run this lab. I can do this data. Ideally, your boss, the next time he would hire somebody, would be more open to accepting a wider diversity of people. Of course, because that experience that you provide in those encounters speaks to what could happen in the future. And so you have to take a different lens to it and think that, hey, how I react to this and what I do next could impact the opportunity for someone else coming after me. Absolutely. And so that's something that, that you, you have to think about. Um, and granted, you know, you, you still have to think about yourself and you have to advocate for yourself, uh, but there's always that in the background. Absolutely. I know that you also have a, a passion for assistive technology and kind of wanted to explore that a little bit with you um where you see the state of assistive tech right now how it's how we can grow it how we can you know kind of break down more of those barriers and show how important it is so can can you speak a little bit about you know where you are i know you've you've had a bunch of comp- you've helped develop a bunch of companies but assistive technology where's your area of interest how do we see that how do we grow that moving forward? And what are some of the barriers to that growth right now? Sure. Uh, so, so my first assistive technology was a handheld magnifier. Um, I got the choice when I was a kid. I was given the choice between a flashlight or, or a handheld loop. Um, and I chose a loop. Uh, made the right choice. Um, and since then, I was always curious um, about assistive tech because at that time, you know, the CCTVs that would enlarge print for me were super expensive. They're like a the cost of a small car. Um, and so, you know, um, we couldn't afford that. And yet I always kept an eye on, on assistive tech. And when I came to college, I had um, a bioptic uh, glasses that would allow me to see, the, um, to see the handwriting on the board and to engage with content at a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that, that, that kind of started my, 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 my curiosity in in assistive technologies, and I've done a couple of research projects with um, bioptics and other kind of tech. Um, my first entrance into the whole world of, of AT enabling tech um, was with my company, Sunu, um, that I helped co-found and co-develop. Um, we were making a product that is a wearable technology 
to improve awareness, um, yet still function as a complement to the white cane or guide dog for people who are blind or low vision. So the technology is a wearable smartwatch or van that uses radar or sonar to sense the environment and then provide haptic vibration, haptic cues to the individual so that um, you know how close you are to an obstacle and with the idea to reduce accidents and improve mobility and, and assist with navigation. Um, I worked on SUNU for, for five years developing the product and taking it to market. And we got the product into right now today, it's in over 50 countries. Uh, we have a huge partnership and network of partners in over 32 countries. And we're working with some of the largest institutions for the blind uh, and visually impaired. Uh, and so having done an assistive technology, not just the wearable, but the mobile app, um, has always kept me involved in the community uh, of technology entrepreneurs who are developing solutions for, for, for a variety of, of conditions, um, whether it's motor or cognitive or hearing or, or vision. Um, I'm speaking with a, with a variety of early stage entrepreneurs developing tech uh, in this area. Um, I think the biggest thing happening in, in assistive tech is the smartphone. The, uh, our phone has a lot of sensors within it um, that enable us to engage within our environment or with our environment. Um, first and foremost is the camera. Um, the camera on my smartphone allows me to now see at a distance so I don't have to use a bioptic. All that now comes built into a nice uh, device that fits in my pocket. Um, it allows me to read a menu or allows me to see the gate information from my next flight. Uh, it allows me to travel independently because I can connect to Google. I have connectivity with a variety of apps. And so what's happened with the smartphone is that now, uh, and I hope this continues, the trend is that assistive technology devices used to be very expensive because they were made for a niche. But now with the advent of the smartphone and mobile apps, it's actually becoming much more accessible uh, and it's driving the cost down in assistive technology. Because now it's taking something that is, was for a niche and now making it much more ubiquitous. Um, you have apps like Uber and in Instacart and other apps that are serving you know, everyone out there uh, and again, people who are blind or visually impaired need to use these same apps and need to engage with them. Uh, so it becomes a question of can the developers of these technologies make them more universal? Um, what are they doing to, to improve access within the apps? Because the apps by themselves can be great assistive technology, um, one for transportation, the other one for food delivery, right? Or you have more... Um, specialized apps to read documents and read mail, which are great. But if it all goes down to how we design the product and how we can make this product more universal so that different groups of users can enjoy the same benefit that it's intended for. I hope that makes sense. That does. So that's a matter of helping those app developers gain a better awareness of universal of universal design principles or of, of better design thinking to think through more, more use cases, essentially. Is that correct? Exactly, because um, the phone, the smartphone has now turned the technology into something that everyone are more ubiquitous. Um, people who are blind or visually impaired have access to smartphones, are using them right now, right? Um, and so... We're having, we're seeing an explosion of apps that are made for the blind to do various things, but we're also seeing a demand from the visually impaired community to have better access to not just the phone's technology within it, but also the apps that are being created for that platform, whether it's for Google Play or for or for iOS. And so that is actually um, creating an interesting um uh, and an exciting opportunity for creators of, of applications, developers to, to really apply these principles of universal design and access early on during the design process, involve people of different abilities at the table from the beginning 
So that way it's not an afterthought and you're not running into other issues when you release the product and all of a sudden it's being used by everyone. Everyone wants their product to be used, but if it's not accessible, then you encounter other, other, um, other potential challenges downstream, but you're also limiting yourself as a developer because you know, you're, you're intentionally kind of sabotaging your own product if you don't make it accessible for people of different abilities. And so with now um, the platforms being much more mature and, and demand happening now, um, it's a great opportunity for developers to think universal, think access, while they're designing their products early on. Is that something that, you know, universal, universal design thinking, is that something that still isn't incorporated into, you know, those, those engineering developer degrees? Is that something that they have to learn after school? Is that part of, is that part of the, the challenge? Um, I'm not, not going to answer too much to that. I think, I think that there's plenty of opportunities to, to learn about universal design, whether in a curriculum um, setting, but it also there's the practical side. I, I focus more on the practical side. Um, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, you ask me, how do you solve problems? Well, you get people, you know, who are experiencing the problem. You get people who at the table who will benefit from this problem being solved. Get those individuals around the table uh, and include them in the design process early on rather than later. Okay. What do you what do you think for, let's just say, you know, the devil's advocate for a second, right? Um, you hear this from companies a lot is, well, then our development costs going up. So in order to design more inclusively, it's going to cost us X number of dollars more upfront than if we don't. And the user base is already wide enough. How do you answer that? You know, how do you, how do you That's answer That's a great that? question. Um, I was uh, I attended a webinar yesterday on the new W3C um, or the new WCAG 3.0 that's just been released in January, and you know in the Q and A there are some good questions coming up from companies or developers about that. How do we convince stakeholders in our company that accessibility has to be done? Um, it can't just be an afterthought. And um, you can actually frame it in that it creates opportunity, and opportunity can improve or in, in bring new lines of business. Um, 67% of Americans are living with some form of disability, regardless if it's visual, physical, or, or cognitive. Um, that's a huge percentage of people that you're leaving out um, in the business case. And so by addressing accessibility in design early on, you are basically setting yourself up to open new lines of business. And it's not that expensive to do early on. However, and we've seen this now in various court cases, that it can be putting yourself to more risk if you don't address it. Um, you know, we've seen the cases of large websites being sued um, for lack of accessibility. Um, we've had the case for Domino's Pizza, for instance, that went to the Supreme Court. Um, so. Again, it could open up more risk. It could end up being a more costly thing for, for your company. But what we talked about yesterday is that instead of looking at it on that lens, let's look at it from the opportunity side, the creativity side, is that it's actually creating opportunities by addressing, designing, in and baking in the accessibility of the product or of, the, of what you're building or the product um, early on. I agree. I think that's a great answer. Um, and, it, and it also ties back to what you were saying before, right? As we get more opportunities, as we get, you know, uh, as we get our seat at the table, that's going to, that's going to drive more change over time as well. So it's a, uh, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but it's, it can consistently improve year upon year upon year. Exactly. Very good. Awesome. So my last question for you, Fernando, is there anything that I missed, you know, in this talk that you think is really important to discuss that we didn't get to? 
I think that um, yeah, we covered a, a, a wide variety of topics from, uh, but I think that you know the the big um, the big topic here is is you know you're not limited by a disability. Um, in fact, you know Hugh Her, um, I saw one of his talks early on. He's a professor at MIT. Um, Hugh Her uh, lost his limbs um, during a accident. Uh, a climbing accident in Mount Everest um, and also lost sight. And what he said in a talk really stuck with me. Um, he said that, um, you know, no human being should ever be labeled as disabled, that all, we are, that all we have are broken environments. And I think that being a person living with uh, low vision, um, legally blind has empowered me to think outside the box, to be a unique problem solver and solve these broken environments, whether it's a lab at a university or, or a lab, um, you know, for a course or a new job, or I'm developing a new product or working with a team. Um, people with disabilities have an opportunity and have a unique ability to solve problems in a unique way, bring a fresh perspective that can bring big opportunities um, in the immediate and long-term uh, future. Absolutely. I agree. I agree hundred percent. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic way to, to wrap things up. If people, if people want to find out more about you, Fernando, where can they go? Where do they, where do they contact, how do they contact you for, you know, new and exciting projects? Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, you can visit me at um, fernandoalbertorio.com. Um, I, I imagine you'll have links um, uh, to Absolutely. that on, on the site. So, um, yeah. but my, um, you can visit me on the web, uh, follow me on social media there. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, I think forward slash Fernando Albertorio. Also, my company is VACA Technologies. You can look at the exciting projects that we're working on there. Uh, we provide strategic and technical um, advice to product developers. Um, and, and small businesses that are working on innovation. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm pretty much all over the web and on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great being on the show. Thank you so much for, for, for doing the podcast. Absolutely.